Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Barbara Kearns. She's an internationally recognized author, speaker, thought leader, and expert on the end-of-life care and the dynamics of dying. Barbara was recognized in 2018 as a hospice innovator by the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization and was named the 2015 International Humanitarian Woman of the Year by the World Humanitarian Awards. We present Barbara Kearns. Barbara Kearns, you're very, very welcome to the show. And I wanted to start with your backstory. Tell us who Barbara was when she started on this journey that led to the development of hospice care. Well, I graduated from nursing school in the early 60s. And I thought, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake. I should have never been a nurse. And so I really should have been a social worker, but I got married. I had three kids. I was a stay-at-home mom. And in the mid-70s, having gone through that phase of self-awareness and studying about what life meant, all of that, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, doctor, came forward and said Americans were not treating their dying appropriately. They had, you know, everybody died in the hospital at the end of the hall and and staff stayed away. And, and she brought that awareness forward. And, in, and at the same time, Cicely Saunders in England start, developed what she was calling a hospice. And a hospice took care of people who couldn't be fixed. Um, and her focus was, let's live the best we can until death comes. So we're going to talk quality over quantity of days. And those two things, Elizabeth and Cicely Saunders, wakened something in me that said, yes, this interests me. This is something I want to be involved in. And so never having nursed, and of course, in hindsight, I can look back and say that was a gift to end of life and for where I am today, because I entered the dying arena with no preconceived medical ideas of what to do when someone was dying. And so I started working as a hospice nurse, did a refresher course in nursing, and then started working as a hospice nurse. And there was nothing out there that guided us or told us what to do. So we literally made everything up as we went along. We observed, we watched, and we had patients for months and months instead of today when you have them. If you're lucky, you have them for weeks. So I noticed there was a process to dying. And that intimate connection that I had with dying people and their families is 
what led me to see that there was a process to dying and from disease or old age and what that was like. The first person you saw die, can you remember that? As you re-entered this as a, a retrained nurse, what was it like? What was the, who was that person? What was it like? What did you get from that experience? Well, the very first one, I was scheduled to meet him, and I had spent a whole week. I started out as a volunteer for four months and then became part of their staff. So the first one, I spent a week thinking about what I was going to talk to and how I was going to interact with him. And the night, the day before I was supposed to meet him, he died. And that taught me that time is the enemy, that if you're going to do and say something, you do and say it immediately because you don't know what tomorrow brings. The first patient that I was actually with at the moment of death, with the family, I thought they were so frightened about what was happening and my, my instinct was to allow that family to express their love for, for this gentleman. And they, were, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to say. And so I kind of just made it up as I went along and said, you know, if you want to get in bed with him, go for it. Crawl in bed with him. Talk to him. Tell him what's in your heart. Even though he can't respond, I believe he can hear you. And so that was the first interaction, and that led me to thinking more about what that moment of death was like and how I could neutralize the fear that families bring to that moment. Mm. And then with each new death and each new patient, I learned a little bit more about what was happening and what to expect so that I was better at guiding the family. I became better at explaining to them, okay, dad's going to breathe like this or his face expression is going to change. Hmm. All of that I gradually learned by being at the bedside. And that was the goal of hospice at that time. The goal was to was the patient's death, was to be with that family at the moment of death. Hmm. Today, not so much. But then that was what we were about because we recognized that that was the scariest moment because people don't die like they do in the movies. And I had to learn that because that was the only role model I had, just like everyone else. So consistently being at the bedside, I, I learned how people die, what, what facial expressions are normal, that nothing pathological is happening. But it took many bedsides to learn that. What did a good death look like as you became more experienced in helping people to pass? 
What did a good death look like for you? Well, I think understanding first, before even looking, understanding the process that in months, that death doesn't just happen. Gradual death has this process and months before death occurs, three consistent things happen. One is a person's eating habits change, a person's sleeping habits change. They start sleeping more, eating less, and withdrawing from the world. Then there's another shift that tells us a person has entered what I call labor, which is one to three weeks before death. And there, the key thing for that is that you walk in the room and the person's sound asleep with their eyes partially open. And they may be restless. They may be random hand movements, picking the air. They're in and out of reality. Sometimes you can talk to them and make sense. Other times you can't. And that's, that's the beginning of labor. And then there are other changes that show us that a person is days to hours from death. And now they're non-responsive. They may be moving, talking, but they're non-responsive to the world around them. And then in the minutes to hours before death, their breathing gets slower and slower and they start breathing like a little fish breathes when you take it out of water, that mouth open and closing. And then there's often, and this this to me is the most interesting, is that there's often a facial expression change, a frown, a grimace. Uh, once in a while I've seen a smile, but most of the time it's this frown or grimace. And followed by that movement, there's one or two or three long spaced out breaths. With this knowledge, I can guide or any of us can guide a family through this experience and teach them that nothing bad or pathological is happening that this is how people die and dad's doing a great job where most of us look at all of this and think something awful is happening so it's it's neutralizing the fear that is really the key i see to end of life work hmm. That's very moving, and the way you describe it is is very graphic. And I can understand why somebody observing that might feel frightened about this, that they're, they're imagining that they're gasping, that they're short of breath, that there's not enough oxygen getting in, that they're suffering. But of course they aren't, because we know from science that they are allowed, that is a natural physiological process. The grimacing and the frowning is not an expression of discomfort. It's simply a way that the body is reacting to the physiological signals that are coming from the nerves into the face. How do you explain that to your families? What I, I use the example of the little chick that's working to get out of its shell. 
if we watch that little chick, it's working so hard to get out of that shell that encloses us. And the driver of the car, which is our physical body, is working very hard to get out of its shell. That's how I explain it. Dying is not painful. Disease causes pain. And I think that's an important message for people to understand because, as you said, in watching what's happening, in watching that chick working to get out of its shell, we interpret that as painful when in reality it is not. Disease causes pain. And there's a lot of diseases that people die from that cause pain. And so you're going to treat that pain. You're going to look at their disease history and treat that pain to the last breath. But if pain is not part of their disease history, then just because they're dying does not mean they are in physical pain. So you don't need the morphine or whatever just because they're dying. So what does death look like today in 2020? You've seen this movement, the hospice movement and the care of families in uh, dealing with somebody who is passing. What does it look like today? Does it give you hope that a lot of that work has been done and that we now understand the process better? Or do you think we're still as frightened as we were 40 years ago? I think we're still as frightened as we were 40 years ago. Hospice today is not the hospice that I helped grow. It's micromanaged here in the States with Medicare. Our goal was to be with the family and the patient at the moment of death. And that's really a rarity now in the States. If a hospice has a no one dies alone program, then they will have volunteers trained to be with that family. I see the end-of-life movement today that end-of-life doulas are stepping in and filling the void that hospice agencies have now become more medically oriented than they were. Hospice started outside of the medical model and was addressing needs that the medical model didn't address. Well, it over the years, it has slowly been absorbed into the medical model. And so the end-of-life doula program now is outside of the medical model, and they are assuming that role that hospice started off with. Mm. And is that because we still deny the fact that people die, that we don't, as doctors, we certainly don't want our patients to die. We see it as a failure. Somehow we fail that patient. But of course, nature will do what she will do. And when the time comes, we will pass. You know, that's to me the whole key in that our medical model treats diseases that people have. And so when they can't treat that disease, then they look at it as a failure. And if if you're concentrating on treating, then you don't 
feel comfortable stopping. And hospice or end of life believes that just because you can't heal the physical body doesn't mean that there isn't healing to be done. We can heal the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual parts of a person even when you can't heal the physical. And so end of life concentrates on people that happen to have diseases. And they also recognize that everybody dies. We are born, we experience, and we die. It's the name of the game. Where our medical model tends to try to override that. We haven't yet got immortality in in the drug formulary, but where to from here? Clearly, we need to pull back. We've, We've medicalized even the process of dying to the point where it has become part of the medical paraphernalia. How do we draw back from that? Because they say, you know, in countries like Australia, by 2030, one in four Australians will be over the age of 65. And the chances of them dying are therefore much higher. We need to address this issue. How do we normalize that experience? How do we get to the point where it's not just a case of saying, well, we've got ward A for that condition, ward B for that condition, and ward C, the hospice, to take care of the dying so that they don't die. <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost like that. How do we address this issue? I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I'm really discouraged. I got a story the other day. Someone shared with me that a, a cardiologist was almost bragging, I will say, that he had done open heart surgery on a 101 year old man and that the man lived through the surgery. And my response was, why would you put someone through that in the name of, I can do this surgery for you? And I think as long as the medical model concentrates on diseases instead of people, we're going to have mentality and death will always be a failure. And that is also why hospice has such a hard time getting referrals and why referrals are days where, you know, I can say a week or so before death instead of months. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think there is money in procedures There is money in drugs. There isn't money in people dying. I agree with you. I agree with you. I think there is money in everything. The issue is that dying itself has become also become part of that industry in the sense that we now say that we are going to create more and more drugs that will help people in inverted commas through the process of dying. When in actual fact, to go back to your original story where you said, if you need to be close to that person who's dying and that involves you getting into bed with them at that point in time, then do it because they need it and you need it. 
if there is no drug that's going to do the same thing, will leave you in the same place as the fact that you are sharing your humanity and you're celebrating your humanity and you're allowing yourself to heal because really death and dying is not just about the person who's dying. It's about the people who are living. Right. And dying is not a medical event. Dying is an emotional, social, communal event. And so we can support and guide those social interactions and not concentrate on the medical where most people do concentrate on the medical and then lament at the failure. I'll tell you a funny story. As you can tell from my my accent, I'm from the Irish Republic, from Ireland. And somebody recently told me that they looked up what are the most common terms that people Google in different countries. Now, in the United States, I believe the term is trademarks. So people Google trademark more than they Google anything else. In Ireland, it's funeral. Really? (laughs) In Ireland, it's funeral. People Google funeral. In other countries, it's uh, IVF. There are all kinds of other terms that people Google. But in Ireland, it's funeral. And I remember being raised in that country. And funerals are a very, very important part of the culture. It's part of how people say goodbye to someone. An entire town will turn out for the for a funeral, regardless of the age of the person. And if it's a younger person, it'll be the entire town and probably the whole county, because it's their way of getting closure. closure. They accept the fact that people pass and therefore you need closure. How do we get that more inculcated into healthcare. We simply don't do that. In healthcare, it's a, it's regarded as something. The mortuary is the furthest part of the building where nobody wants to go. It's hidden in the bowels. You don't want to talk about it. It's the place where the doctor's mistakes go. I used to sit with families as mom is dying or mom has died and we're sitting in the living room waiting for the funeral home to come. Mm -hmm. And that was always a good time for me to talk about funerals Mm -hmm. and the importance of the ritual of a funeral in our grieving process. And we tend, Americans in particular, are this death-denying society, and so we don't want to deal with it. So what happens is they don't have visitations, they don't have funerals, they have celebrations or a memorial service a month later, and the closure, the seeing the body, the dead body in the coffin is so important in our grieving process. Then there's no playing around that dad just took a vacation. It's dad is dead. And we need that, I will even say that shock Mm -hmm. to our system that confirms that dad is dead. Now I begin grieving. Where without a visitation, without a funeral, uh, without the ritual, 
it complicates our grieving from that point forward. Yes, I can see that. And having been to a few funerals, I can see how how important that is. And, and in Ireland, you do see the body in the coffin. It's part of the, there's a wake. People, you, you're yeah. actually lying in your coffin in your sitting room and people come in and see you in that place and they know that this person is no more. They've left. And the funny thing is, when you see a dead body, you realize very quickly that that person has passed. That person is no longer in that shell that they once called their body. There's no denying it. It's not like seeing them lying asleep. They are definitely gone. And you can see Arm. that life is extinct. Yes. I, re- I, I will share a story. I, I took care of a gentleman who had ALS. And he was on a ventilator that his physician was afraid that hospice was going to turn it off inappropriately. So part of our orders were that we were not to touch the ventilator and we were to call him when this gentleman died and he would come to the house and pronounce the death and turn off the ventilator. So... Now we're in a room where with the family and we're looking at scrapbooks and talking and he is non-responsive and it occur all of a sudden we start talking about we being the family and me how are we going to know when he's dead because he will, the machine will continue to breathe for him. And this poor body was just purple. And you couldn't get a blood pressure. You couldn't get a pulse for days anyway. And at some point, we all looked at each other and the room felt different. You knew that he was gone. And I can't tell you what was different But I can say all of us knew that the driver was gone. So then we called the physician and he came over and then he turned off the ventilator. But I think that confirms your point of there is a difference between a a live body that's non-responsive, that's barely breathing, and a dead body. You can feel the difference and you need to feel and see the difference so you can then move forward in your learning how to live without this person. How do we get the next generation understanding this? Because clearly some generations don't see death. They only see it at the last at the point at which they experience it for the first time. But I remember my own children experiencing the death of a pet and we allowing them to actually bury the pet in the garden, seeing the dead animal, not saying that the pet is out on a holiday somewhere, saying, there you go, this has happened. How do you feel about that? Do you think that there's a point at which we need as a society to face up to our fears and how do we teach that to our children? Um, absolutely, we need to face up to our fears. Now, whether we will or not is another is another whole thought. And 
I think you pointed out beautifully, you start with your children by not hiding death from them. It starts with a pet. It continues when grandpa dies. And we talk about what it, what the difference between grandpa being alive and grandpa being dead means. And again, now we're a visitation is so important. You bring the kids, let them play hide and seek among the flowers in the coffin if they want. That's fine. I tend, now this is just me, for children, little children, children who don't know enough to sit still in church, I don't see them coming to the funeral because they distract everyone around them. You bring them to the visitation, you let them play, you talk to them about grandpa and about dying and what that means. Let the church ladies watch the four-year-old during the funeral because funerals are about listening and visitations are about visiting. And both are important. But when it comes to children, I think little children can just be very distracting during a funeral and they're not going to get as much out of it, if anything, where at a visitation, even a four-year-old is going to get it. You know, at the Journal of Health Design, we're very much about small change, big difference. And what you're talking about is how do we change our mindset in order to make this reality It's a reality whether we like it or not, we're going to pass. It's just going to happen to all of us. How do we make that not such a big deal, not such a big trauma for the people who are left behind? Let's face it, it's for the people who are left behind. It's not for the person who goes into the box and into the ground or or into the flames or whatever it happens to be. Barbara Kearns, we are honoured to have spoken with you today. You've made such a difference to generations of people who've been through this experience. Thank you so very much. Oh, well, you're welcome. Thank you. I have enjoyed our stimulating conversation. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.